Turn in your Bibles uh, with me this morning to uh, the Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be uh, this morning in verses 21 to 32. We uh, were in, and for those of you that are, are new with us, we're in what is referred to in, in the Bible as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel. It's a time that Jesus sat down with his disciples, and he also had a multitude of other people that were following after him, and his disciples came to him, and Jesus began to teach. And so when you look in your Bibles and you see all the red letters, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. This is one teaching out of all of the Bible that really allows us to really get in and understand really uh, what the Lord requires of us as believers. What is he really looking for a Christian to look like in this world? We should be different. We should be really set apart really from any other religion in the world. It should look different. It should appear to, we should act different. And so this morning's message... I titled the message, God's Standard of Righteousness. Now, I thought I was going to do all of this in one. Joe asked me that. I said, yeah, I'm going to finish the whole chapter. And now it's part one. And so we won't get to part two until after Easter, but this is God's Standard of Righteousness, part one. But before we uh, get into our text this morning, let's read the verses from last Sunday. I titled last, uh, last Sunday's message, Christ Fulfills the Law. Let's read in our Bible, starting in uh, verse 17. Do not think, Jesus speaking, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, tell heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That was last week's message. And we learned that Jesus didn't come to take away anything from the Ten Commandments, anything from the Old Testament, anything from the law, but he actually came to fulfill all that, fulfill all of that. He was and is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And so... When we get into this section this morning, it's important for us to remember that because this flows into what we're going to be looking at this morning. In those four verses last week, the important statements that Jesus made to his disciples were these, and there's really three of them that I see. The first one is that Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. That's the first one. The second one is Jesus warns those who would wrongly interpret the law. 
Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The third one, or the third statement would be, and uh, he tells his disciples, and he's telling us this morning, that he has a standard of righteousness that is unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, He says, for I say unto you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That sounds like it's a pretty important statement, but it could also make us think, am I all right? Do I have enough righteousness to be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven? I can tell you that in yourself, you don't. But Jesus Christ has imparted his righteousness to your account. And as a matter of fact, when the Father sees you someday, he's going to see the righteousness of his Son in you. Isn't that, isn't that a blessing? Don't you? That should cause our hearts to rejoice because otherwise the alternative would be we've got to get there by our own righteousness. That's why I titled it God's Standard of Righteousness. Today, though, we're going to be looking at three of the six illustrations in the remainder of chapter 5. I shared when we started the Sermon on the Mount that the Beatitudes, there's uh, eight of them, I believe, that these uh, Beatitudes are foundational to the rest of the teaching in in chapters 5, 6, and 7. I also uh, shared that the Beatitudes, that they really consist of doctrine, and then they consist of application. There's doctrine and application that we see in them. In verses 17 to 20, uh, I believe that these were also important for us to understand our message last week for us to be able to grasp what Jesus is going to say in the remainder of this we needed to get verses 17 to 20 if you didn't or you weren't here last Sunday know that all the messages that get uh, that get taught they're on the website and you can go in and review this and I would encourage you to do that I also believe that the overall theme of Jesus' teaching in the three chapters here of the Sermon on the Mount uh, might be, uh, we could put maybe a whole heading to all the Sermon on the Mount and call it true righteousness. This is what true righteousness is. But it could also be said that the application of this sermon, the practical part of how we would live it out, has to do with kingdom living. It has to do with how we should live as Christians, how we should behave. And so there's a lot of practical application that we're going to see even this morning. The problem that we have, and we know that uh, I've shared already that the backdrop, we'll call it a backdrop, the backdrop to chapters 5, 6, and 7, this Sermon on the Mount, is the scribes, and the Pharisees. They're always kind of in the backdrop and the theme of what's kind of going on here. Now, the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees was not that they lacked interest in God. It wasn't that they uh, lacked interest in God or in the law. As a matter of fact, they held it in high esteem. 
The problem that the Pharisees had was that they were more interested in the interpretation of the law and then, uh, than they were in the application. That's never good. If you're a person that just wants to get in and study the Bible and look at it and dig all these truths out of it, but you never apply it to your life, there's a danger in that. That's what the Pharisees were uh, quite often, interested in the interpretation, but not applying it to their own lives. They were also more interested in the mechanics of the law than they were in the souls of people. And whenever you have a person that's like that, and they become very legalistic, if you've ever been to a church that we might call a legalistic church, where they're just hammering people with these certain things, it's not a very pleasant place to be. They're more concerned with the mechanics of the law and their doctrines and things than they are about the souls of people. My desire for this church is that the people in this church would grow to fall in love more and more with Jesus and his word and that they would just be seeking to live and to walk and to follow after the Lord because they love him. That, you know, everything else, all the mechanics and all the, you know what, they're important, but we can't hold that above the souls of people. And lastly, I believe that they were often more concerned with the letter of the law than they were with the spirit of the law, which I believe put them in great danger. Because when you do that, you could be in danger of misinterpreting the law. Or you could also be, and really this is the the danger of it, you're misrepresenting God. You see, if you misinterpret God's word to people, you're really misrepresenting God. Because this is God's word. This is his truth. And we, uh, we need to hold that in high regard. Lord, I, don't, I do not want to misrepresent your character to people. I don't want to misrepresent your word and the truth of your word. And so these were some of the ways that the Pharisees and the scribes, these were the religious people of the day, but they were really misrepresenting God in many ways. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says this, And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient or adequate of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. That's where he wants us to be. All sufficiency. Lord, it comes from you. It's nothing of me. It's all of you. And it says, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, which the letter is speaking about the law, the commandment, the Old Testament. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter or the old covenant or the law or the Ten Commandments, it says, Paul says, it kills But the Spirit gives life. You see, we have to be careful that when we read God's Word, and we read a lot of the things in the Old Testament, we have to be careful that we always bring a balance of what the law and the Spirit is. And it's important. Paul went on to to say in verse 9 of that chapter, he says, For if the ministry of condemnation... 
Anyone know what condemnation is? It means to be judged guilty, to be condemned really to, to God's wrath. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. You see, we uh, New Testament Christians, we're not living under the law in the sense of it saving us. Is the law good and just and holy? Yes, it is. And it's something that we should look at and apply and pull application from. But we need to make sure that we do not have a ministry of condemnation towards people, but a ministry of righteousness. There is application, I believe, in there's really six illustrations that we see in the, in the remainder of chapter 5 here. And there is application that we see in each one of these six. But there's a bigger picture that I believe that follows last week's message. Because I believe that these six illustrations that we're going to read here are really showing us that God's standard for righteousness, that it exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's why I believe Jesus is not giving six little sermonettes on all these different topics to have them stand on their own. He's giving six illustrations that support what I taught last week, that Christ came to fulfill the law and that his standard of righteousness exceeds theirs. And this is how we need to to be uh, looking at them. Jesus, he doesn't want to just reform you. Uh, he doesn't want to reform just your outward actions that you do. Uh, he wants to transform you from the inside out. Does everyone understand that? That God wants to deal with your heart. He wants to deal with my heart. He wants to change me on the inside so that the things that I do on the outside will transform. You see, God starts with the root of the problem. We quite often look at it and trying to fix the outside actions. Oh, I'm going to stop doing this. Well, this is wrong. And I'm going to, and then we get all frustrated when we realize, oh, I can't do it. I've been trying for years to stop doing this or doing that, and I can't do it. The Lord wants to deal with our hearts, and it's always a heart issue. Jesus, uh, two weeks ago, uh, said to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. He says, you're the light of the world. Those were statements to Christians. It's what we should be. We're salt, we're light to this world so that they might be saved. God wants to use us in that way. But it's very important that when you read your Bibles, as Christians, when we read our Bibles, there's one word that is of great importance. It's the word context. And the word context just means that which goes with the text. What do I mean by that? Well, context is defined uh, this way. The parts of a written or spoken statement that precede or follow a specific word or passage usually influencing its meaning or its effect. What do I mean? When you read your word and you see one particular verse out of the Bible, you should always read before it and always read after it because you want to be able to keep that particular truth in context. 
Now, we need to even take it further than that. Because uh, how many of you went through how to study the Bible, the inductive method of study? I know some of you did. I'm not seeing any hands. But at any rate, okay, we have two there. Uh, how to study the Bible, the inductive method of study. Uh, you learned in that class, I didn't teach it, Joe taught it, but I know you learned in this class about observation, interpretation, and application. And so when you read your Bibles that way, you begin to take a text and you start making observations from the text, pulling out little truths that you see there, but making really at that point, you're not really making any application or excuse me, any interpretation of it. You're just getting the facts, you're connecting the dots. But then as you gather those together, you begin to make interpretations. As you make those interpretations and start realizing what Jesus is saying in that, as you've looked at the whole context, then you're able to make application to your life. How does that apply to me? Now, what do I do with this? How do, you know, how do I live this out? How does that affect my life? I say all of this about context and about interpretation and, and uh, application because it applies to what was going on here with the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, not all of you will ever be a teacher of the Word of God. But in a sense, if you're a a born-again Christian, know this, that you really are a teacher. And how does that happen? Well, every Christian at times will open their mouth for Christ. Christians sometimes are just talking about the, the Word of God, or you're sharing with somebody as you're discipling them, and you're, in a sense, you're teaching them things that God has taught you. And those of us that are parents, as you're teaching your children stories from the Bible, and you, you really are a teacher, aren't you? You may never stand up in front of a church or in a class, but you become a teacher of the things of God. So you have the same responsibility that I have when I get up and teach the Word of God, to look at your Bibles and to study them that way and make sure that what you do say is representing God properly and also His Word. When you read your Bibles, you need to always keep one thing in mind, and I already shared it, it's context. Let the verse that you read then begin to explain what's in the chapter and let the chapter then be in context with the book that you're reading. And then most importantly, and this is where sometimes Christians go wrong, is that they don't look at a particular context in light of the whole of the Bible. So you can find a truth, but if it conflicts, conflicts with something else in the Word of God, then you need to sit back and go, let me get the balance to what's being said here. The Pharisees were real good about taking things out of context, misinterpreting the law. And by that, they misrepresented God and they brought great damage really to God and to the word of God, the truths of God. Here's something else that I've learned through the years, and maybe you've already learned this too. If you ever find something in the word of God that you believe that no one else has ever seen before, this is kind of new. This is like a brand new thing. I, I've never even heard anyone say this before. This is like a new truth. If you start thinking like that, I'm going to tell you it's probably not true. 
because there's nothing new. You might be new to you. This might be the first revelation that you're hearing of this and God showed you something new. But there's really nothing new that God is revealing to somebody uniquely that I just showed you something I've never showed anyone else before. You need to sit back and go, eh, I don't know. I, if it's brand new, it's probably not true. We also... We need to remember that if a passage of Scripture that you're looking at, if you keep it in context and then that unfolds to the whole Bible, you're probably not going to go wrong. But many times Christians take one part of a Scripture and they build a whole doctrine upon that, and by that they misrepresent the whole Word of God. And you can get it out of context. I throw those cautions out because what we're going to look at right now is exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees did. Let's look at the first illustration, uh, verse 21. He's talking about murder beginning in our hearts. Murder. We're talking about, this is, a, this is big, isn't it? Murder in the heart, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old. Or we could say it this way, you have heard that it was said of the ancients, what the ancients taught, those that go back into the uh, Old Testament, those that go back to when the law was given to man, when God gave his commandments. You have heard that it was said by those of old, you shall not murder. And here Jesus is quoting the sixth commandment from Deuteronomy 5.17. He's he's making a a direct quote from one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. But he says, but whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, and this is important, that but, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. So here Jesus goes and takes, he goes from murder to, to being angry. I mean, that's a big divide, isn't it? I mean, from murder to being angry. He says, but whoever is angry with his brother is without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says uh, says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Murder often begins in the heart. Murder, and those of you that know the term premeditated murder, first degree murder, those are things that are calculated in really the heart and mind of man before they actually commit the act. Premeditated murder. You thought this out. Jesus says here, and talks about murder as being something that begins in the heart of man. That's the issue. Uh, Here's the scary part about this. We all, I believe, have within us the capacity for murder. I think that's appalling. I mean, I, I would never murder anyone. I'd never hurt anything. But I believe in our very nature that we have the capacity for murder. Isn't that scary? I think all of us would probably sit here and say, 
I'm not a murderer. I would never murder anyone. Can you see, though, why Jesus would need to uh, preface the rest of this teaching when we read last week, do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill. Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law and that not one jot or tittle would pass from it until all is fulfilled. He wasn't adding to it. He was just simply saying, I'm the fulfillment of it. And my righteousness far exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And for the disciples hearing those words, they must have been thinking, what hope do we have? Here's now Jesus saying a murderer and somebody that's angry. I mean, you know, where does it end? How could we ever become righteous in the eyes of God? But let me ask you a question this morning. How long does it take for truth, the truth of God's word, to get distorted? How long does it take for it to be changed by somebody or for somebody to water it down or add to it? How long does that take? It didn't take very long in the garden, did it? When Adam and Eve uh, heard those words about not partaking of the fruit, and then something was added in there about not touching it too. And you know, it doesn't take long to put a little bit of distortion to the Word of God to change the whole meaning of it. How long did it take the early church? Remember, the, early, uh, the New Testament was completed by 100 AD. And, and so over the course of maybe a 60-year, maybe even less than that, 60-year period, the whole New Testament was written. Now, what would what does the whole New Testament consist of? A bunch of exhortations and corrections of doctrines and all these different things. How long did it take the church to have the pure sense of that word to take and then begin to distort it and water it down and change the doctrine? And Paul happened to correct it. It's, it, it doesn't take long for people to do that. And the scribes and the Pharisees, really, they did that much with God's word. When you speak evil against another human being, uh, really, which is one of God's creation, in a sense, what you're doing is you're devaluing that person. You're, You're lowering their worth. God says, I made them. I created them, every human being. And what we do and what we can do when it's issues of our heart is that we can devalue people. We can, uh, we can lower their worth below what, how God views them. That's wrong. God doesn't want us to do that. That's what he's talking about in the wording that he's given here. The scribes and the Pharisees, they may have been able to say this in all of their religiousness. They may have been able to say, I've kept the written commandment of the letter, of the law. Uh, they, they may have been able to say that. I've never murdered anyone. Just as we could, many of us here. But what's happening here is that they were missing the full meaning of the law. They didn't get the full meaning of the law. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said of those of old, but I say to you, That's where it kind of goes to another level. 
they said, but I say to you. Now, look at the progression, though, that we see in these verses. Jesus warns them here really with three statements. He says, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause makes him guilty before the court is really what Jesus is saying. If a person is angry with someone without a cause, he becomes guilty. And whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. Now the council was the Sanhedrin, those 71 men that made up the court, this religious system of Jews that sat there and made judgments. And you notice he goes from just before the court to now before the council, those that would say to his brother Raka. And then he says, the Jews, uh, or excuse me, this word Raka, let me just clarify that. This word Raka is really a, a word that was used of contempt. It, it's derived from, and the root meaning of it really means this, to spit. So start getting this picture in your head. This would be, uh, we might say, the equivalent of a person saying to another person, you stupid, empty-headed, good-for-nothing person. This is what Jesus is really saying here. He says that you would be guilty of standing before the council when you say raka to somebody. But then he says, but whosoever says you fool. He says, shall be in danger of hellfire. You see how it's even progressing even more? Uh, The Greek word there for fool is the Greek word moros, or we say fool. And it's actually even a stronger word of contempt towards somebody than raka, than, excuse me, than raka. The Vines Bible Dictionary says this about raka. Raka scorns a man's mind and calls him stupid, where Morris, or fool, scorns a man's heart and his character, and hence the Lord gives a more severe condemnation. So do you see the progressiveness of this? And the Lord is saying, this is an issue of your heart. It's not, you know, it's not just the issues that you've said this bad word or this word of contempt towards somebody, but there's an issue in your heart. And if that issue of your heart was left to run its course, when I said it to you before, we have the capacity within ourselves to really be a murderer. And most of us don't like to think that. But it really begins in the heart of a person. Jesus says that the correct interpretation of my law or the full meaning of the law is that when you slander or you insult a person's intelligence or uh, denigrate a person's worth, it's equivalent to murder in your heart. That's what Jesus is saying here. And now that's getting real personal, isn't it? Because, you know, I don't think of myself as a murderer, but have I ever done that? Now it's starting to get personal, like, like, well, this might involve me. In 1 John, the Apostle John speaks about love being a chief characteristic of a a true child of God. This is what he says, 1 John 3.10. 
In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. He's contrasting, isn't he? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then he says this, Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. Uh, And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. You see, what was going on in Cain started here in the heart. He saw the righteousness of his brother's acts compared to his own, and it started to stir him up with an anger from within inside. To the point that he took his brother's physical life. That's his blood, brother. He killed his brother. Do we have the capacity of our, in our heart to be a murderer? Yes, we do. When Cain, I believe, even killed his brother Abel, I don't believe that it was just some random act. All of a sudden, he just blew it off and killed him all of a sudden. I believe that there was something that was stirring on in the heart of Cain for a long while or for a period of time that brought him to the point of wanting to take his brother's physical life. You see, it's always about the heart. Everything, as Christians, God is always most concerned with your heart condition, more than he is with the outward. But we get it backwards. You may be able to say, I haven't murdered anyone in my life. I don't think that I ever would or could. But maybe we've murdered in our heart. Maybe we've done it with our spouse. Maybe we've done it, you know, with a family member, somebody we say we love, but we have maybe have murdered people at work. We maybe murdered that guy that tried to run me off the road, (laughs) driving down the freeway. We do those things sometimes, and they're really issues of our heart. But Jesus tells us what the remedy is. Look in your Bibles. Here's some practical application, verse 23. Therefore, because of what we just read, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your wife, no, you say wife? No, it says brother, but we could insert wife. (laughs) That your brother has something against you Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Here's some practical application. The sixth commandment was the letter of the law. But it wasn't the full meaning of the law. Jesus says, my standard of righteousness, it goes further than the written law. It exceeds that. It it, it actually extends all the way to what? My lips. My standard of righteousness exceeds all the way and extends all the way to your lips. And you know what your lips are attached to? Your heart. Jesus says, I want to work on your heart. 
and it'll affect your lips and the things that you say. I think there are times that all of us have found ourselves trying to kick things under the rug. You know that expression? You don't want to deal with a particular way that you handle people, the way you say things, this and that. We kind of kick things under the rug and we let it go. But, you know, in Jesus' perspective of things, these are serious things of how, uh, what, what's going on in the heart of a person. But I believe that if we're listening to the Holy Spirit of God, we don't kick things under the rug. Because the, the Holy Spirit doesn't uh, really, if we're listening, doesn't allow us to do that, not deal with sin. He, he doesn't allow us to kick it under the rug and walk away from it and just, oh, you know, that's just me. I mean, I'm not, I'm not perfect. He wants us to deal with those issues of the heart. Jesus says, when you bring your gift or your offering to the altar before God, when you, when you come to that place of worship, as we are this morning, we come to this place of work, and you're bringing your, your, your gifts, which could be like our prayers before the Lord. You're, you're, you're bringing your sacrifices, in a sense, before God as you even come to this place. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit reminds you or convicts you that you have anger or, for, or unforgiveness issues in your heart. What does Jesus say that we're to do? Leave your gift there at the altar. So if all of a sudden you all get up and leave, I'll know what's going on. Leave your gift at the altar and and go and make things right. You know, see, Jesus is very practical. I mean, he he just gets right to the issue. We could come and sit in church and go, yeah, I'm just, I'm doing the church thing. But the Lord doesn't want us to do the church thing. Jesus says in verse 25, and I believe this is what tells us, uh, it speaks of urgency. Look at it. Agree with your adversary quickly or make friends quickly. Get it right. Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let sun go down on your wrath nor give place to the devil. How many of you, especially those that have been married, have ever gone to bed with anger in your heart towards your spouse? You didn't deal with it. I didn't want to deal with it. And I just went to bed angry. And that anger turned into a week and it turned into a month. The Lord says, deal with it quickly. Why? Because the enemy will get a foothold when you let it go. Jesus says, be reconciled. And you know the word, the command that's in that word there is the word be. Be is a command. Be reconciled, which means to change your feelings towards another. And so become reconciled to that person. To be reconciled means to restore something to its normal relation. Uh, to bring something back in harmony again. And, that, and I'm not just talking about marriage relationships. I'm talking about relationships in general. It's speaking about animosity or quarreling or, 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 you know, or faults that are in relationships. And sometimes that can be one-sided. Sometimes it can be two-sided. 
It's usually two-sided, but sometimes it can be one-sided. But in the context here, it's a person who has been offended by another person. And so Jesus says, I want you to go out. You've become made aware of this now as you've come to bring your, your offering before the Lord and go out and make it right. Very practical. That really is God's standard of righteousness. Right living. The way we should be as Christians. Not as the scribes and the Pharisees and the way they interpret it. I've never murdered anyone. Yeah, you ever said raka? You ever said fool? You ever, you know, yeah. Jesus goes on in verse 27 to give a second illustration of sexual sins of the heart. Again, it's a heart issue. You have heard, look in your Bibles, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. He's quoting here, Jesus, from the seventh commandment. Deuteronomy 5.18. It's just good and holy. It's right. But look what he says in verse 28. But I say to you, here's his standard. Whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Underline that. He has committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. The written law says that you shall not commit adultery. That's how it reads in the Ten the Seventh Commandment. It's right, it's good, it's holy. God's law is. But adultery can also be defined as having sexual intercourse between a married person and someone other than your lawful spouse. That's what adultery is. Fornication is when uh, there's voluntary sexual intercourse between two unmarried persons. That's fornication. We can also have people that can uh, have spiritual adultery. And spiritual adultery is when anything takes the place of God in your heart. You're letting other things rule and reign in your heart. And it's really spiritual idolatry before God because you're placing other things above God in that place in your heart. If you want to read what the penalty for the seventh commandment is, then you can look in your Bibles at the book of Leviticus in chapter 20, the whole chapter deals with the penalty for sexual sins. Sins, plural. But here's one of them, Leviticus 20, verse 10. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. That's the way the Levitical, that's the way the law read. That's the way the Pharisee in the mindset would have been. 
towards anybody that would commit adultery. Jesus says, you have heard that the ancients teach the written law. But what I say they have, uh, that they're missing is the full knowledge of the law. That's my paraphrase. They're missing the full knowledge of the law. When they limit it to just the act of idolatry, adultery, excuse me, when they limit it just to that. You see, the Pharisee was fine with saying, hey, I've never committed adultery. I'm good. And many of us could say the same thing. I've never committed adultery. I'm good. I've passed this one. But Jesus' standard of righteousness takes it a step further. It's not man's standard. This is God's standard. Jesus, he will never tell you to stop doing something without giving you the means and the way to be able to stop doing it. He doesn't say, stop this, stop that, and not not tell us how to do it. Aren't you glad? Because some of these things are pretty like, well, what did I do? How do I fix that? Look at your Bibles at verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. Now, that's a pretty radical statement, isn't it? Real radical. For, it's, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Another radical statement. Cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. What the ancients of old were teaching the people was, don't fall to the sin of adultery. It's a a sin that's perishable by, by death. You'll die if you commit that sin of adultery. And they probably took a lot of pride in holding up to that law. We know that they did, don't we? When we think about the woman that was caught in adultery. We know that story, don't we? And that woman was brought before the Lord and it was really brought before the Lord really as a test. It was the scribes and the Pharisees that did this. They brought this woman and they said, we have caught this woman in the very act. But notice that they only brought the woman. That's not what Leviticus 20.10 says. Yeah, it's both. Bring them both and let's stone them both. But they brought the woman to stand before the Lord, really to test him. What did Jesus do? Just like he ignored them, like he didn't even hear them. And he just begins to write and just lean down and, and begins, you know, and with his finger on the ground. And so then they continued to ask him, that question. They were, they were getting frustrated probably that he wouldn't answer. And he raised himself up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience, they went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up, he saw no one but the woman. And he said to her, woman, where are your accusers? 
Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's the heart of our Lord. The Pharisees wanted to bring her and bring her and bring condemnation to cause that law to be executed. And Jesus was more concerned with the soul of that person and what he was going to do in this woman's life. When we read about taking your right eye and plucking it out and cutting your hand off, it's actually a way of teaching. And it's real. It's it's a uh, her hyperbole is how you say the word, and a hyperbole is when you make an obvious and an intentional exaggeration to make a point. Okay, and that's what Jesus is doing in this statement. So, I don't want to see any uh, any of you coming in here with your hand cut off next week or your eye plucked out. Okay, because this is a hyperbole. Right, He's making a point with the statements, but it's a strong point, isn't it? It, it? it demands us to actually do something that we might say is a little bit radical to change the circumstances. There, there's also, under the name of religion, there's a word that is called asceticism. Asceticism is when, like the monks... They go out into a desert cave, you know, and if you were to take a monk and you were to pluck his two eyes out, cut his two hands off, and go stick him in a cave out there, out in the desert, <laughs> don't get that picture in your head, but if, if, if that were to happen out there, he could still fall to this sin. Why? Because he has a heart. You'd have to pull the heart out of his chest to make that stop. Because, see, Jesus is concerned with the heart condition. That's what causes the sin. The third illustration, and we'll finish with this, it's bitterness in the heart. Verse 31. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, here it is again, he's, he's ratcheting it up. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. We know, we now come to this, uh, this third illustration, but uh, this was never really a command of God. This is not a, this is different. It's, it's not a command of God that he's calling, but what we have here is that the ancients once again are distorting. They're changing. You know, you see, God's original intent for marriage is what? That you would remain together. God never intended two people to come together and then to make a provision in a way that they could get out of that marriage. That was never God's intention from the beginning, ever. But what we did have, or what we do, we did have then and we have today, is that you had people in different camps. There was one uh, set of Jews that uh, they were, we might call them the liberals. You know, and then you had the, the other ones that, were, that they just held to the law. 
And, and, and so you had all these differences of opinions about can a person get divorced and get out of a marriage? People, in a sense, trying to find loopholes. And it happens day in and day out in the church today. People trying to find a loophole. Well, what does the Bible say? Is there any kind of way that I can get out of this thing? I'm miserable. And from the very beginning, it was never so. So what is a bill of divorcement, a certificate of divorcement? Well, there was a legal statute in the Old Testament of what means and ways would have to be. And it, and it did have to do with sexual immorality. It had to do with somebody cheating on another. But, but from the beginning, it was never so. Jesus says, I allowed that certificate of divorcement because of the hardness of your heart for a way out. So basically, you wouldn't kill yourself. I'll give you this. Because I don't believe that divorce to be honest with you, is the, as some people might look at it, like it's the ultimate sin, like the unpardonable sin. But what is it about marriage that makes it so, uh, the whole issue of divorce such uh, a, a wrong thing? And if you look at the book of Ephesians, you can see that the marriage relationship has to do with the relationship that Jesus Christ has with the church. He loved the church and he gave himself for it. And when you uh, and I have become married, when you're married, this love relationship that you have with your wife, it's really a testimony to this world of that relationship that Jesus Christ has with the church. We want to see a good testimony of the relationship of this church to Jesus Christ. And our marriages really become a picture really to this world to those that know you're Christians, to know they, they know you have a Christian marriage, that, that of the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ. What the law protected was the woman who had been driven from home by her husband, but often he would not even divorce her. He'd tell her to leave, get out, get out of, you know, you're gone. And then he wouldn't divorce her, and she would have, then she'd fall under the law. You know, I can't, there's, I'm basically tied up for all of my days. Or somebody that leaves. And there's all kinds of scenarios that people come up with as to, well, can I get divorced now? Can I do this? From the beginning, it wasn't so. And I, and I believe that the heart of our Lord, no matter what the situation is, God hates divorce and doesn't want that. And so just fix that in your mind. Um, don't look for loopholes, those of us that are married. Never look for a loophole. Just always say, Lord, help me to fix the issues that I have. Jesus, or just like uh, the Lord's Day, we have, uh, though, these different interpretations. One of them was uh, the Shammai, I think it's, I don't even know how you say the word, but uh, this group that it was more of the, the uh, liberals of the law, uh, or, or excuse me, these were the ones that just tried to interpret it to the letter of the law. The other group was the school of Hillel. And the school of Hillel were the, uh, were the ones that 
uh, actually they were the ones that just basically said, if you burn my meal or you mess up my meal, I can divorce you. For almost any reason at all. That's what Jesus is contending with here when you have this backdrop of these scribes and the Pharisees that came in with their wrong interpretation of the law and they start telling people this and that. So you have both sides of the fence. I believe that uh, what Jesus says in verse 32, he says, but I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except except sexual immorality causes her to to commit adultery. I believe that within the marriage, the bonds of marriage, that sexual immorality is that one sin of that can cause that marriage to dissolve. I believe, though, that even with that said, that in the that in God's intention for marriage, that God can even heal and does heal that. It's not like it's an automatic. Oh, you know, I mean, there was unfaithfulness. And so I'm automatically going to divorce. I believe that God's intention is that people would remain married, even under that scenario, though it's very difficult. And when that happens, it's probably the most difficult part of keeping a marriage together when trust is broken. But I also want to make a point, and I'm going to finish with this, that Jesus here in this teaching on marriage is not giving a uh, dissertation on the way to get out of a marriage by talking about except for sexual immorality that you can get out of marriage. That's not the intent or the purpose of what he's saying in context here. He's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees that are misrepresenting the law and saying it the way they want. And and so Jesus is really clarifying it and showing and extending really what is true righteousness. We, uh, We have three more to go. In a couple weeks, we'll go through these. These are, uh, I think when we get to the end of chapter 5, what we're going to see is that God's standard for righteousness, that it, it far exceeds any of the scribes and the Pharisees. It far exceeds what man will try to say. We get all mixed up with man's interpretations all the time with things. But what does the word of God say? That's what's important. But when it when it says, but I say to you, those those words, every time I read them, they just like jump off the page at me. You know, they say this, but I say to you. And that's the important uh, part of what Jesus is getting across here, that my righteousness, my standard of righteousness exceeds that of what man says. And so, Father, we uh, thank you for today. I thank you, Lord, that that your word speaks to the very core issues, Lord, of life. It it, it deals with my heart. It deals with our hearts. And Lord, our desire, Lord, is to have you change our hearts, to make us more like you. And Lord, I know that in my life, Lord, to, to be more like you, that hurts. It hurts to change. But Lord, we know that by your spirit, Lord, that you want to do that in our lives. 
you want to make us more like you. And Father, that we would be those representatives of you, that we wouldn't distort your word or change it or water it down, but Lord, that we would live and seek to live by the standard, Lord, of your righteousness that you've laid. And Lord, not in our own effort, not not in our own ability, but Lord, by your spirit, that we would be able to see these changes in our life. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray.